I'm starting <laughs> recording, and uh, your screen says Valerie Cheney. I know. Recording video and uh, audio. Is that cool? Oh, it's not showing me? There you go. There, we, there you go. Car. That's a snappy you lid you've got on there, Pete Holmes. This is the standard issue celebrity hat. <laughs> the chapeau of destiny. You want a hat that has no logos on it. I know other mildly famous people that wear hats like this because it's like if you're wearing a, like my dad wears a Red Sox hat and that's yeah. a conversation starter. That's actually the one element. I'm not a sports fan, but I actually sort of think that's really cool is that people go around wearing hats. And then, you know, I was just in line back in our old lives. Uh, I remember going to Disney World <laughs> and I was just thinking of my father very fondly that there was this guy with a Red Sox hat. And I was like, my dad would just start talking to this guy. That's sort of like my dad's. It's like an icebreaker. Yeah, and that's his. That's the best part of my dad. I love my dad, but I would say the best part is that he just like is fearless, sort of like you. He, he likes talking to people, and and if you're wearing a Red Sox hat or you're wearing a Yankees hat, uh, Yankees obviously is not his team. Uh, he'll still talk to you and be like, you know, he's always. He looks like a player. He's wearing a jersey. He's wearing the hat. So he loves talking to people. So you got to wear a hat that has no logo on it. If you're, you know, it's for like, I got this hat uh, when, I, when we were shooting Crashing. And if you wanted to take the subway and, and you know, it's when I was tired, you'd throw it on. Usually I don't mind talking to people on the subway, but you'd throw on the, the hat if you're looking to take a little snooze. <laughs> the generic cat with no logos so nobody can start up a conversation yeah john mulaney has this exact almost this exact hat and i that's when i started to put it together i was like yep you want you want just a nondescript hat but now that you know and i know if i if i'm on the subway in new york and i see just like a khaki hat i'm like that's probably john krasinski <laughs> <laughs> go, go talk to that guy it's probably you probably he's on something you just might not know it well, how are, uh, I'm recording now, by the way, so I'm, I'm following your lead on just, uh, you know, starting a podcast cold and, and letting it go where it goes. Um, <laughs> I did some questions go. and things thought out, but how are you guys doing? How are, how's Val? How's baby Lee, who I still haven't met, which is, oh uh, pains me deeply. How are you guys doing? See, that's a, that's an old life, uh, thing. Like now, if you were like, if we were able to, and you were like, we want to come see the baby would just do it. You know, that's the great right. lesson that we're learning, or at least that Val and I are learning because we, we can hole up a little bit. And now the, the privilege of being able to visit people, it will never again be lost on us. I can't say we won't ever feel antisocial or whatever, but now that sounds like such a paradise to have you come by yeah. that we won't make that mistake again. But I sort of have to downplay how much we like it uh, and I have to um, acknowledge the, the the pain and the suffering. Uh, the people if you're going to pick a pandemic, this is kind of the one for Pete Holmes, right? <laughs> this is the, that makes me feel very seen. I I have a few friends that are like, "You must be loving this," and I was like, "Oh wow, that really." I didn't know my friend Jay Larson. He really he knows me because I feel like people might know my persona. Um. And not to say my persona isn't really me, but they would be like, oh, that's probably a guy that loves to like, just go to a restaurant and sit at the communal table and just ask everybody if they've ever seen a ghost, you know? And that's not, that's, that's not really me. I like controlled bursts of socializing. And so I, 
the, the way that I can explain very quickly why I like this is there's nothing in the calendar. Yeah. And I've quoted this many times, but Jimmy Kimmel, when he did my podcast, he said, if it's in the calendar, I don't want to do it. And I was like, that is it. And that reminds me of some of the days that you and I have shared in Laguna. It's like, no one wants to go like, all right, I'm going to go to David's at 11 and then I'm going to walk down to the fucking shocker shack and we'll be in there for 20 minutes and, <laughs> and then we'll go free diving. And then afterwards, Dave will reveal that he's had weed with him the whole time. Uh, like the best days are where you get stoned unexpectedly or I, I don't drink anymore, but the, the best drunks of everyone's lives are always, in my experience, that talking to people, it's always some lunch that you just accidentally split two bottles of wine and, and you stayed so long you ended up having dinner. Those are the best moments. And now that every day is, uh, is free, I'm not getting drunk and you know I'm hanging out with my baby, but I love having nothing in the calendar. And I love the challenge of uh, staying in the moment because, sorry, I'm so chatty. I haven't talked to anybody in a while. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed that the way away from despair in these moments is basically my life's greatest passion is practicing presence. <laughs> and I catch myself when I start to panic or feel dread is because I'm thinking about how tomorrow is gonna to look like today. And that's, that's sort of like an unpleasant feeling. But if you just go, if you take that unpleasantness as a reminder that you're not being present, you can just ask yourself, what's wrong right now? Nothing is wrong right now. I'm hanging out in my house. Uh, later, I'm gonna make uh, some lunch, whatever it is. Just, just say yes to the moment. Um, and then you have a better story going in your mind uh, than the people that I understand, but the people that might be panicking. They, they start really getting lost in not only the monotony, but also the potential danger. And then you're just telling yourself a pretty shitty story. <laughs> and, and the story doesn't really change anything. If you're taking precautions, yeah. drop, drop the story and just deal with the fact that you're sitting on the couch right now listening to a podcast. Just completely surrender to it. So, sorry, this is a long way to answer, but like everything that I do spiritually is very helpful in two instances. Both will be interesting to you, I think. One is this instance, is quarantine. Everything that we're doing is designed for monks and hermits, you know what I mean? Like right. everything that I enjoy reading is about trying to find uh, equanimity in stillness. And two, uh, drugs, taking psychedelic, <laughs> psychedelic drugs which is what makes psychedelic drugs such a fun sort of crash course in pushing the limits to what you can say yes to. If you, if you can say yes to like Frank Sinatra and clown makeup, which by the way, I've never seen anything even <laughs> close to that on psychedelics, but that's what people say, things like that. If you can say yes to the walls uh, bleeding, then you can say yes to your in-laws, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think so. Well, saying yes to your in-laws while the walls are melting. Now that's a, that's a special day. Do you, um, so have you been doing, uh, I'm jumping ahead in my questions here, but I think you got me there. Um, well, first of all, actually, before we get to that, um, do you consider yourself an introvert? Because I mean, I know your, your presence on stage is like larger than life and you're kind of life of the party class yeah. clown, but I think 
you know, it's how you're engineered, right? It's the energy that you feel around people. And I've noticed yeah. this when you've been at parties at my house or how you've kind of talked about being at other parties, one not really liking to go to them unless it's a small group of friends, et cetera. Yeah. Do you feel like, are you an introvert? Like naturally you think? I think that's what this whole experience is really illumined in me. Lots of things. If you're paying attention, I, I, I think I notice when I'm doing dishes, not to, I will answer your question directly, but like, I'm still like sad about my divorce. Like that's what like stillness can provide you. It's been 10 years and I'll just like catch myself feeling like, what is this feeling? It's because we have all this quiet and all these stillness. Mm. And not that you asked how to deal with those feelings. I always welcome them in. I say, you're welcome here. You know, what you resist persists. And I say like, come on in. Like that's the human experience. I'm feeling a little sadness over my first relationship really it's not just my first marriage it was right. my first first person that i loved like that you know so anyway i i also the, learned the first person you had sex with too right it is also the first person i had sex outside with. I of your your hand i mean my hand and i are still going strong <laughs> yeah that'll never, that'll never i've never there's no need for me in couples therapy me sitting next to a giant left hand <laughs> I'm a lefty. Well, since we're there, do you use the right or the left more often? I use I use the left, yeah. Do you ever it's use the right just to change it up? I'm not into that. I'm not trying to fool myself. I know it's my hand. I know it's me. I know what's happening, and I don't I don't retreat. You know what I mean? I, I'm not like this is it. I've actually jerked off while tripping before, and not. And it's really, it's really weird. It's going like, look at what I'm doing. Like, you, like all of this awareness comes into what you're doing and you're like, I am gripping my own dick and like simulating the sex act. It's very, and it's very hard. I don't think I finished. Like, I think it, it gets too weird. You're like, too it's heady. so fucking weird what you're doing. But anyway, I, I've learned from this that I am very introverted. Um, I, I look at you as a true extrovert and I look at me as um, an introvert who learned how to use extroversion, if we can, if that's even a word, yeah. for his benefit, to make himself happy at times. You know what I mean? Like you have those introverted impulses. But another thing that I'm learning from this is, is what I want isn't necessarily what I need. That's, that's like such an important lesson for me is to remember that like, I'm not the best person to steer the ship and to separate myself from my brain is go like, my brain is like, this is paradise. We should just sit on the couch all day. And then there, there's like a, another part of me that self parents and goes like, you have to go on a hike, not because it's good, but because like, it'll, it, it'll make you happier in the long run, or you have to call a friend or you have to go to, when I back before this, when I would go to the comedy store, leave an hour early and just talk to people. I, that's not even really my impulse, but it's like the parenting part of my brain will go like, you need that. I know you think you don't need it because my brain is sort of hyper-rational and it's like, what is gained? What is gained from talking to a person? I'm also an achiever. I'm a three on the Enneagram. So I'm like, if you're not teaching me something or validating something that I thought, like, what is the point of this? I kind of have like a cold, almost Asperger side to my brain. So I have to override that and go, you're an introvert. You're an achiever. Fuck that shit. People need people. Like people die. I'm not trying to be funny. People die from not socializing. 
right. I, I was trying to be funny like a second ago now, but that fact is very uh, scary. No, but I think that's important, right? I mean, we all have things we have to work on. We have to be aware of what we need to change and adapt and uh, being aware of those things and adapting them is, is it's called adulting, I think. Right? Yeah. And, and like for me, whenever I see my parents, I, I have the same impulse. I always want to write, don't forget you could be wrong. I've said this a million times because I've thought it a million times. I want to put it over my bathroom mirror. Luckily, I don't have to because I don't, one of the things I'm proudest of myself is that I remember I could be wrong. You could be wrong. In fact, one of my favorite, I'm not a bumper sticker, I'm not a tattoo guy, but if I got a bumper sticker, I like the one that says, don't believe everything you think, because that really is one of the great deep mysteries of life is to, is to differentiate yourself, your awareness or your true self from what you think. Because what I think and the patterns that I think based on the pain that I've experienced and the, and the neural pathways that I've developed to avoid pain, like, like I realize like I'm sort of like an addict person and like it's hard for me to have alcohol or weed in the house because I'll just want to smoke it all the time. And one of the epiphanies I had was just because you feel good doesn't mean you're doing good. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. be high as a kite and your body feels like it's floating in honey, it, yeah, maybe you're still not getting what you need, even though you've hacked the thing and you feel great. Right. There's better ways and more prolonged ways, ways that are more prolonged to feel good in your life. Yeah, no, I think in, you know, in skiing, we call it earning your turns. You know, sometimes it's better to hike up and uh, you appreciate the, the rundown better. Sometimes if you have a house That's full funny. of great booze and weed. Yeah. You know, Maybe earn it, right? <laughs> Dude, I, I love that. Because I tried back in our old lives, I had a joke called drugs are for losers. It goes like this. It's very short. It's, it's basically what you just said, earning your turn. Uh, drugs are for losers. Yeah, that's not true. Drugs are for everybody. But they're especially for losers. <laughs> I don't really love it because you have to call people losers. But what I'm saying is, like, if you, like, endorphins and adrenaline, these are things reserved, it's a reward system for your brain. I go on a hike and my brain gives me a good feeling because it's like, thank you, you just took care of your heart, you took care of your body, that's good, let's reward the animal, reward it. Right. I'm, the, I'm the rat pushing the button, give it the good thing. So drugs are really just a way, and I'm not, obviously I'm not fully against this, it's just you realize that pushing the button that gives you the good feeling as a rat isn't the point of life. And look to any study where a rat can get free opium. Right. Opium. I mean, we're, and that's us. And, and this is, so yes, I'm an introvert who realizes that introversion is not always what I need. So a, a big practice in my life, because Val is not an introvert, she's a cozy person and, and we groove very well together. Uh, it, it meaning it never comes up that she's like, you never take me dancing. She's not like that. She enjoys the same type of lifestyle as us, but I have to like deliberately, and she knows this, part of the th way that I work on myself is she'll say, do you want to this? And there's a 99% chance that I don't want to do it. And I'm not talking about something like classically horrible. I'm talking about just like a normal thing. And I've, I've, I try as often as I can to just say yes and then deal with it. Yeah. Do you, uh, what are you guys doing on a daily basis right now? I mean, obviously you can't go out, you're not going to restaurants. 
Um, are you guys getting out and hiking? How are you, uh, how are you managing? Yeah, we, we go on, there's a neighborhood hike that we do almost every day, sometimes together. It's hard because you have to bring the baby, which makes it like a resistance hike because the baby weighs almost, it's almost 30 pounds now. So you're like, carry, you know, on your back or on your front, you're carrying a baby that doesn't really want to be doing it. So there's a lot of resistance. How, how old uh, is Jane now? She's uh, 18 months. 18 months. Oh, almost great. 19 months. Wow. So we, that is, I have an app that keeps track of these and like I've never hiked so many days in a row um, because that's just like a huge part of it. But like Val is more of a, she's better at night. So she gets up, she sleeps with the monitor and around 2 a.m. the baby will get up and we'll move her into the bed with us. And then around either five, between 5.30 and 7, she gets up and I get up with her. Hold so on. that's how it starts. Oh, I didn't Sarah, Sarah's just walking behind me. You want to, you want to hey, say hi? Hi, to Sissy. How's it going? How are you? <laughs> nice to see yeah. you. Miss you too. We miss you so much. I can't wait to get my hands on that baby post, <laughs> post COVID. She's going to be smoking and roller skating by the time. <laughs> Hopefully at the same time. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. Um, we can't wait for you guys to see her. Oh, my gosh. Well, just, uh, yeah, M missing seeing you guys up close and loving the podcast as always. Oh, thank you. Are you guys able to go to the beach? We drove to Malibu yesterday and there was no one on the beach because we were going to very dad energy, very David Vanderveen. You got to know when the rules can be bent. Yes. And we were like, I know we don't live in Malibu and the beach is close to the public, but can we park on this side street that we know of near an Airbnb we stayed at and just go on a private beach? But no one was on the beach. Like that completely blows the dad energy call. It's like, if you're the only people on the beach, of course someone, and there were cops, someone yeah. is going to say, what are you doing here? What is it like in Laguna? So Laguna, we've, they've closed down all of our beaches. The, park, well, the parking's open, but the beaches and, and the, the, being in the water is closed. And really? The, yeah, and the official trails, all the, like we have a lot of canyons and mountain bike trails and hiking trails here. And that's all, all the official ones are closed. So, um, but like Salt Creek, which is literally just on the other side of the U Laguna boundary is still open and strands. And then North like Newport and Huntington are still open. So we've been hiking. There's some unofficial trails behind us in Bluebird Canyon that we've been hiking some like illegal mountain bike trails basically. Oh, wow. Um, and then there's, you know, I, around here, I know where to get in the water, um, away from people. And so I've been doing that. Um, we had a good swell last week and oh, you've uh, been serving too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, have. Sarah hasn't, but I haven't been, I'm, I'm uh, it's been cold and I'm, I'm not quite as adventuresome as David is but yeah no it's fun so it's been good well, I was gonna what brought it to mind is you both look exactly the same and great and shiny and luminous and healthy <laughs> so I was like man we tried to go in the water like it's it was calling to us I just and we we ended up sitting between these two properties there was an, a vacant lot so we could see the water and Leela was able to kind of like play with little rocks and stuff but it was, we were separated by two fences. And I was like, this is how life feels right now. This is the perfect yeah. metaphor for like, there's two thin, you could jump them. Like you could get to the water just in the same way that I could hug you. I just shouldn't. Right. And I shouldn't go to the beach. And like, that's what life feels like right now. No, it's so strange. And I think trying to navigate it too, right? It's, uh, 
I just did an interview with a, a surf comedian who'd become really popular, John, John, uh, John Wayne Freeman. And he kind of grew up a similar background to you. He's came from a conservative, went to Point Loma College, hilarious guy. But the, um, we were talking about, he's a paramedic too. And he was like, yeah, you know, I, he, I asked, asked him if he's, I noticed he had stopped posting from the beach. Mm. Um, and I said, are you still surfing? And he's like, <laughs> he was like, it depends who you're talking to. <laughs> because yeah. I think everyone's trying to manage, you know, what's responsible in terms of how they're behaving. But then also there's a whole level of who's watching what you're doing and what are the reactions people are having? Because there's a wide range of what people feel comfortable doing right now. And yeah kind of the role model. So I think I actually you're a very good role model. <laughs> uh, I feel that way about face masks in public. We don't wear them because Leela wouldn't wear one. Uh, and we just stay away from people. So I'm like, this yeah. isn't, well, I'm not in public. You never see anybody. But when I see someone walking and they're wearing a face mask, I take it as a sign of solidarity more as like, this is necessary. And I like it. I go like, thank you for taking it seriously. Because speaking of David Vanderveen and that good dad energy, my dad has like, I'm gonna call them Trump levels of bad dad energy because he's got that like, fuck it, like it can't get me. Like there, there's, a, there's a hack comedian joke, which I hate, which is uh, usually the host says it. He goes, don't drink and drive. By this point, I'm talking about like in the early 2000s people would do yeah. that. Most of the people were drunk and then he goes, but hey, they can't catch us all. And I was like, <laughs> That joke is like, first of all, it's hack. Everybody says it. Second of all, you literally might be killing people because somebody drunk hears your dumb joke and we're that impressionable. Then they drive and they kill somebody or kill themselves. Right. I feel that way about my dad's attitude for this. It was very scary for me that he's still going to Dunkin' Donuts. I think it finally closed, but he has like a hyper-masculine, I'm going to say toxic masculine, approach to this where like i understand like i like that you're finding a quiet cove where you can where you know no one's here no one's even gonna see it's okay or whatever but my dad is uh really flying the flag of like everybody relax like he just has that thing and i'm like dad you're 76 or something i don't know how old he is but like my mom is 79 come on dude please like, why am I Lysoling my groceries and my dad's just out there, like, picking an apple from a tree and eating it? Like, what the fuck? He's freeballing it with COVID out there. Yeah, he's freeballing it. Which, there was a time when you going to China, I was like, look at Vandy's. He, he went to China, he didn't wear a mask. There's a good version of it. But when we get a scope of what's going on, like, every, like even Indiana Jones at a certain point, or fucking John Wayne <laughs> at a certain point has to go, all right, partner, maybe we, we don't get a posse together right now. Let's, let's lay low. Well, and, and to my, I think you're talking about my, I, had, I was in Japan for a couple of weeks in February. And oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was China. No, it's okay. I was supposed to go to Hong Kong and Shanghai, uh, you know, so Hong Kong and mainland China, and literally was, the conversation was, and we've been dealing with, you know, COVID in, in, in China, but it was, we were trying to figure out what was going on um in you know in january in particular and i was i kept saying look i'll go if we really need to do this because i've been in revolutions i've been in other all kinds of craziness you know traveling around the world launching markets wow. and, stuff. and but then you know it became really clear that it wasn't a good idea japan was fine 
um, as far as we could tell at the time. Now it turns out the government was hiding information so that they could try and keep the Olympics this summer. But oh my god! Yeah, they're just having like a huge blowout now, unfortunately, because you know they they were they kind of made it look like it went up and dropped off in all of their reporting in February, and then um, and then literally like late this month. And I saw these photos from friends of mine in Japan on social media where they you know, we're just out at dinner doing all normal stuff. And then now it's, um, it's, it's become clear that it's a, they, they got hit. They just had a state wow. of the glass. That week. makes me nervous that, that, uh, old, old Donnie Trump will try something like, you know what I mean? Like if there's yeah. a way to manipulate this, to save face or have him look good, let's put it this way. If he says everybody can go out, I'm like, I, I'm going to fact check that pretty hard before yeah. I just, go to a restaurant you know no for sure and i think even like you know i mean if, if you even look at like how the world health organization was manipulated by mainland china you know and how they were saying even until late january that it couldn't you couldn't transmit covid person to person it was only animal to person then a week later they reversed it you kind of have to double check the uh how politicized some of these sources are do yeah. you do you know if your dad watches a lot of fox news I don't think so. I don't think they watch a lot of news. It's it's next level. Like some people sort of get their uh, get their information from a source that might be saying that, and then have my dad's attitude. My dad's attitude is uh, it's like a spring. It's naturally occurring. He just gets it from within. And Which again, like based we, on personal experience. What's that? Based on his personal experience, is that what kind of drives that, or is it just he just reacts negatively to authority? Yeah, I think that's it. He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. I wrote this in my book. He said, we were at a funeral and he said, when I die, go up and say, my dad did it his way. Like that's all he wants to be remembered for. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I, I, I take, we, remember we started this conversation by saying what's good about my dad is that sort of like, he was fearless. He, he is sort of fearless. I wish he could have a little bit of, reasonable fear here um but uh he did definitely make me think that the world was for the taking you know what i mean and yeah. like not, don't be afraid of anybody and you can do whatever you want so i learned a lot i don't i definitely don't think i would be doing what i'm doing without his example as a guy he's just a planet he pulls other people into his orbit there there might be a nice orbit happening but when the pluto i know why did i pick the one planet that's not a planet <laughs> But when the, it's not a planet anymore? <laughs> I, guess, I still think it's a planet. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But uh, Saturn comes in. My dad is Saturn. And then all the planets just start orbit. I guess I should say he's a star because planets orbit around stars. But what I'm saying is he controls the energy in a room. Maybe we're all moons to his planet. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you? So tell, tell me about that a little bit. So you, you were raised in... This, I think this is really fascinating uh, and you've, you've written, this is a lot of your work and you've done, you've created so much. I mean, you've produced shows, you, you do stand up. you've written books, Sex God's Amazing, Crashing is Amazing. Um, I love your stand up. our whole family does, all of our friends do and, uh, and we're not, I don't think we're terribly biased. We tell you if it sucked, you're just really, really, <laughs> um, <laughs> we're pretty, pretty honest. But the, you know, it seems like the way you were raised, there must be a fearlessness because you've broken through so many barriers and you've created so much that most people can't even break through one of those things, like getting New Yorker cartoons published or 
getting stand up on Jimmy Fallon or you know, Conan or having your own talk show or having your own HBO uh, show, having your own specials. I mean, you've done so much of this, but you weren't, I mean, you were kind of raised that way, but kind of not. I mean, you were raised, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about where you were raised. You were raised in Lexington, Mass. Is that where you were born? Yeah. I mean, you're really right, right on, as, especially with the, I'm from Lexington. My father is from Somerville and my mother is from South Boston. So they're like real Boston. And I'm sort of, I mean, I don't want to say I'm South Boston, she's a Southie. She's from Southie. Yeah. So like, but she's a Lithuanian. She's a first generation Lithuanian immigrant. So South Boston did not uh, welcome her. You know what I mean? Like, so she, when you think of South Boston, um, you're thinking of like, I don't know what you're thinking of, but probably an Irish person that like a couple generations. You know, Mark Wahlberg and his, you know, where he came from, right? Yeah, exactly. But you're not really thinking of like an immigrant. As Chris Rock said, uh, Boston is the only place that's racist to other kinds of white people. And um, my mom, she never really told me too much about the struggle, but she did say they, they got like shit thrown at them and stuff. So she, she didn't have like a, I'm Southie. The good thing about Southie is the people that are there have such a sense of identity. I don't think my mother has that. Mm. She's not like, you gotta go back to Southie. Like, in fact, I don't know. I think I got some of that from her too. I'm a little bit non-regional, but that sort of informed my life as well, is that like, I never really felt like a Boston person. And by the way, there are millions of Boston people that feel that way. I mean, when we talk about Boston people, we're, we, you're talking about Mark Wahlberg. Um, and then you forget, or people forget, like there, there was that dumb commercial, ah, Smat Pack, you gotta have the Smat Pack. And I'm like, okay. I, what bothered me most is that people from Boston loved it. They were like, this is the best, and they're all sharing it. I was like, you realize we're also the home of MIT, Harvard, have you heard of it? Like, we're like the fucking intellectual epicenter of the world. Like, we beat New York. Like, right. we beat New York. Like, fucking Boston has some of the smartest people in the world. And it has this sort of, like, down, backwoods, south feeling. So I never felt at home. My, my parents had that hard Boston identity. My Christmas and my Thanksgiving was a bunch of Mark Wahlberg's. And I, and I love them, they're great. But I didn't have the accent because they yanked us out and they raised us in uh, Lexington and we went to school in Cambridge. So I sort of had this like, what they would probably call a hoity-toity silver spoon sort of upbringing. I don't know how to change a fan belt. You know, I, I, I can drive stick to save your life, but I couldn't, you know, I don't drive one for fun. So I didn't have any, and I also don't like sports, so like, it's weird, but that was really informative. Jake Johansson, this comedian uh, that I love, has a great line where he goes, I'm from Idaho until I realized we were free to leave. So the fact that I didn't feel indebted or identified with Boston made me realize at a young age that you sort of choose your story, you choose your family, you choose your identity, and it's a blank white page. Everything else is just uh, a persistent lie. No, 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 you're from Boston. People from Boston love the Red Sox. Well, fuck off, I don't give a shit. Uh, no, no, you're from Boston. People from Boston, uh, and I'm Irish. They, we love corned beef, and well, I don't eat meat. Like, you start to see these small uh, violations that you can do, and, and look, the world still exists, and you're okay. So that leads to a sort of upwardly mobile 
well, if I can do anything, then I can do anything. As opposed to going like, people from Boston don't do that. Like, and believe me, there's a lot of like people from Boston don't leave Boston. How could you do that to your mother? Is like a thing people would say. But I, so where I'm from has a lot to do with the, the fearlessness and the self-authorship that I feel I've had over my life. Did, um, you were kind of, so I, I know Lexington, my in-laws, you know, lived there for about 18 years. We used to go there a lot, Lexington, Winchester. Lexington. Winchester. <laughs> but the, so, so when, when you're talking about that area and that, you know, being raised there, you were raised, I mean, if, if I'm getting, I know your story fairly well, but you were raised in kind of in a conservative Christian home, right? And you guys went, you guys went to church? I mean, that's the quick way to say it would be to say that my parents were um, sort of fundamentalist. That's how I would say it if we weren't going to talk. But that's not really true. My father was sort of, you know, his quote on church is you go, uh, you're better with it than without it, is what he said. It, it's, it's very much, and I appreciate his honesty. It's what a lot of people are doing with church is like you want to, Richard Rohr, one of my favorite Richard Rohr quotes is the best place, one of the best places to hide from God is church or religion. And I was like, that is just fucking dope. He's like, as long as you go, and that, and no disrespect to my father, that was a lot of why he went. He wanted to be thought of, excuse me, as a person who goes to church. So go to church and he's an achiever as well. Okay, achievement unlocked. You are a good person. Yeah. You go to church. See, and, it's like checking the box instead of doing the work. Yeah, don't be a weirdo. What do you, what do you don't be a weirdo. Everyone goes to church, go to church. You know what I mean? Um, it, you want to belong. You don't, you don't want to be a, a freak. You, you, you go because that's what people do. And that's honestly, if we're being honest, that's what successful people do. That's what Irish people do. That's what people from good people from Boston do. So he wanted to be normal. He really wanted to be seen as normal. My mother, on the other hand, they went to a church called the Vineyard. They were, they were Catholic. And then my mom went to a church called the Vineyard, which I believe there's one out here, which is a little bit more, uh, as we would say, a personal relationship with Jesus church. Like a Bible and church, right? It's a Bible church. Yeah. So she started studying the Bible and singing praise songs that like had a little bit more, I don't know. I can't really compare it to Catholic because I don't, I, I didn't go to Catholic services, but the songs are more contemporary and you know, whatever. So she really liked that. And my mom is a six on the Enneagram. And if you know the Enneagram, uh, pe people who are sixes tend to really like religion because they really, really desperately want to be sort of, they want to be led. That sounds like a put down. It's not a put down. It just means they take a lot of comfort in the institution of religion. So my mom, uh, and this is, that's a good thing, uh, took a lot of comfort there. So she doubled down, uh, invited the Lord in her heart, learn the rules very, very well. Um, and then, you know, basically shifted my father and uh, along with her into the evangelical church. So this is where it gets a little bit weird is that, so you would think that my mom in the movie of my life is the person that's telling me like sex is bad or you're going to go to hell. It wasn't her. I went to church to please her because she was a very, stressed out a person. So I just wanted to be the best boy that I could to sort of bring her down. 
And one of the ways I did that was going to church. And then once I was in church, I did like it. Um, I, it's, it was my social life. I love the big questions of life. I love the feeling of meditating or holding in your head the thought of something bigger than you, all the good things. So I took to it. And then the church is the one that told me, don't jerk off and, and, and you, you might go to hell for this, this or this. My mom was like pretty lax. Like, so it was her interest that got me into the church and the church was fundamentalist. But to save time, I might just say my parents were fundamentalist or I was raised fundamentalist, but it, it really wasn't her. Yeah, well, you even have a story in Sex God, your book, um, which is- a Comedy great. Sex God. Rob, Rob's book Comedy is Sex, Sex God. God. Sorry, sorry, Comedy Sex God. Excuse yeah, me. no, no, please. Um, but you have a, by the way, is it is that like three things, like Comedy Sex God, or are you calling yourself a Comedy Sex God? I, you know, I really do regret, you know how they have those t-shirts that say like, Tina and Amy and Rachel, like, you know, with the ampersand? I wish I had called it comedy and sex and God. I, I really do. Not because I mind the question. It actually was fun because I'd go on like the, the Today Show and I knew would have something to talk about. Even right. if they hadn't read it, they would ask me that. And yeah. then I would have an easy way into saying, no, comedy, sex and God are the three most important things in my life. Sex being love, comedy being art and God being the mystery. And those things really had a toothpick through them. Like, they all informed each other. Sex being the only biologically driven sin. I, I'm using air quotes there. So I, you know, there's no throbbing biological urge to shoplift or, <laughs> or swear or lie. So I was very, very good. I just couldn't get over myself. And that really is the point of enlightenment or salvation or whatever is to get the fuck over yourself. And I was so concerned and convinced that God and my holiness and my going to heavenness was linked to my ability to not have sex or not masturbate or not think sexy thoughts, which of course don't think of a purple elephant. It's, it's what you're going to do. So that's why it's called that. And you're in, in, in the book, you, you mentioned, you're talking about how your parents weren't, so fundamentalist. You have a great story about uh, finding some soft pornography in your in your garage and your dad's work workbench or something. Yeah, yeah. See, there were all these stories that I didn't include. My dad was cool enough, Vandy's enough in the in the good way uh, that my dad can be that sort of rule breaking guy. I just asked him to buy me a Playboy, and I think he was going to do it. This was in eighth grade. Um, <laughs> I also think he was just relieved that I was straight because I only hung out with girls and I collected stickers. But I was, uh, don't worry, Dan. I was the horniest guy. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like baseball, but that's because I wanted to be, uh, you know, using my bat in other ways. I don't know. So <laughs> uh, I did find, I think it was someone who worked for him because he had a big garage and they restore old cars in there. So I don't think it was his. Uh, if it was his, I, I would actually think that was pretty rad in, in a Vandy's sort of way, in a like, I like looking at beautiful naked women and I hang them up in the workspace. Uh, but I don't think my dad is that sexually comfortable. So I do think it was somebody else. Um, and I, I mean, like, I remember so vividly seeing it. I remember the images so vividly. 
And I used to just go in there. I don't know what my mom thought I was doing, but I'd go in there all the time and just have a, have a good yank. And, uh, but then I, I knew that I had to get rid of it. Like it was, it was the, you know, there's that line, I think it's Paul says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And uh, well, I wasn't going to do that, but blame I, our hands, our hands are pretty innocent <laughs> in this whole thing. Yeah. They, look at all the things the hand does. You're going to judge the hand on, on 90 seconds of its day. So, but I knew that you had to deal with these things seriously, or I thought you were supposed to. So I like put, there was a pan of oil they were changing in a car and I put it in the oil and then I took it out like rescuing a seal from an oil spill. I took it out with sticks and put it in a bag. I don't even know if I included this in the story. Then I drove it like a mile away and threw the oily fucked up calendar in the trash a mile away. This is like how you would get rid of evidence or, or drugs or a knife, uh, you know, like an OJ knife. And then I, I, I drove back and burned the tissues that I had used to jerk off. I burned them on the roof. I was such a, I was so hungry for liturgy and ceremony. And my, my desire to please God really wasn't um, God in, the, in any real sense. It was like a hyperactive superego. It was a part of my ego that was a self-hating self-judging so our, our friend is rob bell rob said to me when he interviewed me about the book he said i wish i could just go back in time and tell you you're okay yeah. like that's all i needed i just needed a vandys i needed a david vanderveen type dad to just oscar wilde right has this great line where he says the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it and i love that line it sounds like just like a call to decadence but really it's saying what you resist persists and I was resisting my sexuality so hard, I was charging it like, yeah. an, like a fireball. I was charging it up and making it the center of my life. When really, if, if a strong male figure had said, you know, God loves you no matter what. If someone had just Mr. Rogers me a little bit and been like, that's not the point of this. Like, there's a line in my book where I say, there's nothing you can do that will take you closer to or further from the infinite love of God. There are only things you can do that will make you more or less aware of that love. And that really is like, that's probably why I wanted to write a book was to get that line into people's hearts was like, we're talking about love and the, like, the big yes itself. You can't, be closer to or further from that. You, it's just, you can clean up your own consciousness so you can feel it and experience it more. You know, and um, I wanna give you a couple of compliments here. Um, there's a really good review of, I've, I think universally your book's been well, well, well received, um, but in America, Renee Roden uh, compared you to, well, she, she quoted Richard Rohr, who's amazing, talking about you. And she said that, uh, what did Richard Rohr say? He said that um, he hails you as a new Thomas Merton. Um, <laughs> yeah. A review of Merton's corpus reveals stylings and concerns like Holmes, the false self versus the true self, contemplation, receiving reality versus grasping it for intellect. And then she said, but she goes on to say, but your book r r most reminded her of 
the off-quoted dictum from Gregory of Nyssa, you know, I think he's one of the early church fathers, who describes the climax um, of what you would call the adventure of faith as a, as a dazzling darkness. Concepts mm-hmm. create idols. This is what Gregory of Nyssa says. Only wonder understands anything. And, and she says, by that, you understand a great deal. Mm. I mean, there's this deep curiosity, I think, throughout your work, right? And it's, it's what makes you funny. You, you help us see things we wouldn't see, that we just kind of glance over or walk by every day. You, pu- you pull our attention to it. And I think it's because of your, your just this deep ingrained curiosity or curiosity you've developed. It sounds like you were empowered to have curiosity, even within a pretty structured environment growing up. Then you went to Gordon College, which is a conservative Christian school. What... What really helped you to break out of, you know, the kind of, I mean, it seems like you came from a place that had a lot of answers. Like a lot of people had written them down. They're in books. Here it is. You want to know the answer. It's chapter five, verse 10. How did you get to a point where you really let the curiosity take over and the wonder and mystery start to rule your life more than maybe the answers? Well, that's, that's, first of all, thank you. I haven't read that review and that's very kind. I really love that. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that when uh, Richie said that I could be like Merton, I didn't know who Thomas Merton was. And now, now I do. And I realize that Richard uh, is in a large part continuing the work of, of Merton and other contemplatives like him. So anyway, that was just an enormous compliment the more I understood it. And I loved what you just read. The, um, but to quote, or at least sort of reference Richie, Richie Rohr, is... Um, <laughs> I think you're the only person that calls him Richie. <laughs> I t- email with his staff and call him Richie. I refuse. And I know, I know he would love it because... Oh, he'll his love whole, it, I'm sure, yeah. His whole thing is, is false self, true self. That, that's the, and by the way... There's a thing on iTunes called True Self, False Self. If you search audiobooks, it's not a book. It's a lecture and it's unbefucking-leavable. It's unbelievable. And say it again. What's the, what's the title? It's Richard Rohr. It's called True Self, False Self. And it's R-O-H-R for people listening. Awesome. That'll just, Val and I both listen to that just kind of whenever. It's like just kind of constantly you're in the car and you think it's going to be dry and boring. It's really the opposite. You're used to someone talking, like a, a guy in a robe talking about God, and it's just going to be a snooze. It's like filled with psychological knowledge and, and literary knowledge. It's filled with poetry. It's filled with humor. It's just, it's, it's dope. Anyway, Richie says that the, we really only, uh, it, we're not like, we don't take this path we're taken. So the only way that you get to this sort of stuff is by being completely broken and eviscerated. Mm. And uh, as Richie, as Ramdas actually says, it's like you have the thing that you thought you couldn't live with. It happens and you're still here. Mm. So that makes you question like, well, then who am I? Like you thought the story was this and the story couldn't tolerate. In my case, it was a divorce. It happened. And yet you remain. Um, it reminds me of Ramdas's first mushroom trip. His body vanished, but he was still there. Like that is like the most writ large summation of the spiritual thing is like, I'm going to make your body vanish. You're going to disappear, but who's minding the store? And that's really the whole thing. That's the true self watching the false self vanish your body. Your, in my case, it was yeah. my story. Yeah. Uh, as as someone who someone all caps 
you know, the first letter, someone who would never get divorced. And then I did get divorced. And in fact, not just divorced, but cheated on. So I didn't know at the time, obviously, it would be crazy if I did. I was only 28. But like having yourself broken and, and erased like that is not always, but often the essential first step. Um, St. Francis used to pray for humiliations, which of course doesn't make any sense. And now I catch myself, sometimes I'll be brave enough kind of hoping for some reasonable humiliations. I'm like, nothing huge, nothing huge. Small one, yeah. Just a little one. And you know what, they're there. Like, just like a, like you could be at a party and just someone says something about your personality. Those, those I welcome. Like, let's, let's get more of those in the mix. Because it was that brokenness. I think it was Leonard Cohen that's at the cracks or what let the light in. So I was thoroughly cracked, not just by my divorce, but my divorce changed how I saw God because the God that I believed in believed that you should get married and he wouldn't let something like that happen. He was just like a, he was like the mafia, you know, you paid him off with all the not smoking, not drinking, no drugs, uh, no swearing. And like he was supposed to protect my bakery and then someone burned down my bakery. And then you're like, well, fuck this. Like you don't, you're, you're not paying this guy. <laughs> what, what, what do I, it's so three, I, it wasn't working. This doesn't work. So I, um, I dropped that. And then from that place of zero, you know, Gandhi said, if you make yourself zero, your power is infinite. And I love that quote. Mm. It's actually what I think the John Wick movies are about. And I'm not just forcing that. John Wick loses everything that he's attached to. And then he becomes a superhuman killing machine, which presumably he was before. But like, he has nothing to lose. How many stories do we have to see about the, the guy who all superheroes lose their parents, all superheroes lose their loved ones. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the Punisher, I'm thinking of Batman, I'm thinking of Spider-Man. Like that, that is the lesson is like being broken and brought to zero is actually the strongest. It's what St. Paul says too, when, I, when I'm weak, I'm strong. But we make it into muscle strength and fighting Dr. Octopus. Really it's, it's that weakness is actually God or the mysteries chance to actually get to you. Because before you're broken, you have too many thought patterns, too many personalities, too many stories, too many beliefs to actually let anything new or miraculous or mysterious touch you. And that, by the way, is what Richard Rohr says is the point of meditation. He says, it's not to relax, it's not to sleep better, it's to give the divine spirit an actual chance to get at you because you drop yourself for just 20 minutes. You put yourself out of the way. You stop listening to your own thoughts. You stop believing your own bullshit long enough to just sit there and be. So your body vanishes like old Ram Dass. You vanish and it gives living spirit or whatever you want to call it a chance to actually put its thumb on your brain and change some of that racism or prejudice or binary thinking or all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking or whatever it is, it can actually start to melt you. And that's why you see people like Richie, who when I interviewed him, I was the same guy that was talking to you. He's not bothered. He, this is a great line from True Self, False Self. He goes, the true self cannot be offended. That I love. And he goes, in fact, the more you're offended, the more you know you're probably in your false self. That doesn't mean... 
Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't stand up for things or or, or think certain ways or, uh, you know, feeding people, for example, is better than starving people. But offense is, a, is an ego trip. It's something that you're doing. So can service be, so can sacrifice be. All of these things that are good can be twisted into ways of self-aggrandizing and being more lost in, in the illusion that Pete Holmes is a real guy. He's a successful guy. He's a comedian guy. Like all of that, all of that goes away during something like this. Oh, really? Joaquin Phoenix, you're a big star. You got to stay inside. You know what I mean? Kanye West has to stay inside right now. This is a, this is a profound lesson. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, this is, I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, I think part of it is when we have to take our, it forces us to take our hands off the wheel, right? And let something else take control of our lives a little bit. Is that yeah. part of it? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's what Richie says is God comes to us through great love or great suffering and suffering, his definition for suffering, which I think is incredible, is not uh, having control. That's all it is. It doesn't have to be getting flogged. It can just mean any situation where you're not, not in control. How did you, uh, you, you talk about Ram Dass a lot. How did you meet or how did you discover Ram Dass? I discovered Ram Dass uh, sort of unbelievably a little bit later in life. He, um, as we've mentioned, is sort of, he was my great teacher. Um, he took mushrooms when he was 31. I took mushrooms when I was 31. I love <laughs> to call out my ego. My ego loves to make these comparisons and talk about how similar we are. But we're both achievers, we're both Aries, we're both from Boston, we both had sort of neurotic parents, upwardly mobile, achievey parents, and we both wanted to be good boys, and we both took drugs at the same time. Drugs is too cheap of a word for mushrooms. <coughs> we both um, had our consciousness so overwhelmed that it we became aware of our consciousness. That's a better way of putting it. I always tell people that mushrooms isn't about what you see, it's about that you see what you're seeing with. That's the point. Right. You could see Frank Sinatra in clown makeup, but you realize that like something inside of you is telling a story and something inside of you is perceiving the story. And you are the thing that is witnessing the story or you're the thing witnessing the thing perceiving the story really. But anyway, I did Duncan Trussell's podcast. Duncan Trussell's a comedian and a podcaster. And he, based on what I was talking about um, and my experience with mushrooms, and by the way, I didn't even godify my experience with mushrooms. I just knew it was miraculous and I knew I didn't have words for it. And then Duncan was the one that was like, well, that's like Ramdas. Ramdas was a professor at Harvard who took mushrooms and then became. A, a spiritual teacher because he realized that the metaphors, the symbols, the ceremonies, and the stories of religion were trying to explain something as ineffable as a mushroom trip, even a million times more ineffable than a mushroom trip. And I was like, oh, of course, like we need stories like the Christ story, which I actually, at this point in my life, believe both literally and figuratively. It doesn't really matter to me. It, you know, if, if we found video tomorrow that uh he wasn't resurrected um that doesn't really matter to me it, but if we did and we found proof that he was that doesn't really matter to me <laughs> like that's not really the point anymore right the point is where it, it takes you and it takes me to a place that's very similar to that heightened state that i experienced on mushrooms which is really a state of non-duality 
and complete acceptance. And you could call that acceptance a big yes. You could call it love and you could call that love God. And I was soaking in it. And then a lot of these words that I'm saying came from Ramdas. And then Ramdas and Rob led me to Alan Watts and then eventually led me back to Richard, Father Richie. And now I'm, not that you asked, I, I know you're interested, but I'm just saying I'm giving you something you didn't ask for specifically. It's weird that like I went from really Christian to briefly atheist, or at least not thinking about it, to Ramdas, so I was like Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, to Rob, who helped me reconcile some of my Christianity. I was going to ask you if you discovered Rob first or Ram Das first. I found Rob first. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Or it was around the same time. You're rest, yeah. And then Love Wins really changed my life. And then Richard. Richard doesn't get a lot of uh, attention for this. But Richard is also a universalist, meaning he doesn't believe it's a meritocracy. It's not earned, which, by the way, if you read the book of Romans, it's kicking you in the nuts over and over telling you this. Um, but of course, the ego doesn't like that. We've turned it into something that you have to earn. Uh, <laughs> but so Richard and, and Rob are very similar. So I, I found other people that are sort of like, guess what? The good news is actually good news. It's not just good news for your for people that look like you and hang out with you i asked uh, skylar my older son you know skylar's a 26 i know him i don't know how to spell it but i know it okay. i asked him <laughs> if he had any questions for you and these kind of tie into what you're talking about right now um so his first one was uh what do you think about polytheistic religions that emphasize breaking the world into into parts with deities this you know rather than unify, you know, rather than unify them. Like, um, like, so what do you think about a, a faith tradition that's trying to break it into multiple gods versus one God, um, where the plurality is emphasized as the organizing principle rather than unity? Do you think, I think what he's getting at there is, you know, you're talking about unification in the sense that you're saying yes to everyone's experience of the origin, the source, whatever you want to call it. Some faith traditions like, Anything that's Abraham, you know, from the Abrahamic tradition, you know, Yahweh with the Jews, Allah with the Muslims, Jesus with the Christians, kind of go for one one central concept. Do you have any issue between, uh, or what do you think about the two different styles? Does it matter to you? Probably doesn't matter that much. Anymore. I mean, I, I, the the quick answer, like if I was getting in a car, I would be like, it doesn't matter. Whatever gets you through the night, or whatever gets you to that experience, yeah. like that. That to me is the point. Is it's dogma, the transition from dogma to mysticism is an experience, an experience of deep truth. And it, it certainly doesn't have to be on drugs. I'm feeling it right now and I'm not on drugs. But the wisdom of a multi-deity faith like Hinduism or Christianity, which is the Trinity, which is, you know, three in one. Uh, I don't know if you've read The Divine Dance by Richie, but that is an incredible knock your dick off book. That, <laughs> I that, think he said that in the, in the, in the back cover. I mean, I'm always giving him blurbs. He doesn't use them. I'm just kidding. It doesn't book will knock your dick off. <laughs> I'm buying it. <laughs> but, you know, he points out that God is relationship itself. So if you have like a faith that's multi-deities, like ancient Greece too, you're still pointing at a very true truth that God is in, in the Christian faith is, is not just three things. It's the interplay between three things. 
And he very brilliantly likens that to atoms and protons and electrons and the way that the, the way that energy moves in the world is always relationship. And when Christ is saying two or more together, he's always pointing to the fact that it's, it's the bringing together of things. So he brings in physics and astrophysics and he brings in theology to show that God is not the dancer. God is the dance. That is the, that's mm-hmm. it. So Hinduism gets that. It's like the relationship between Hanuman and Ram. That's basically monkey Jesus right. <laughs> and Ram is God. That is it. That's the juice. It's the interplay. <laughs> monkey Jesus? Monkey Jesus is awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's bas- I say that, I mean, I have a Hanuman here on my desk, so there's no disrespect there, but like it's a very similar story. And that relationship, the, the indwelling in us and the original. Here's the fun part, though, is if you talk to a, a high level or a, I don't know how to say this without condescending the other side, but like a deep Hindu, deep down, they'll tell you it's all one thing. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, just, it's, it's all one thing, which is what we're experiencing now. So that leads to the first question Skylar had for you, which I think is also really good. He said, a recurring message on your podcast is for us to remember how arbitrary a lot of the categories are we use to organize and divide up the world, right? Like you, um, you give this example, ladybugs don't think they're Italian, right? Even if they're in Italy. Um, he said, it makes me imagine I'm part of the cosmic whole for a second. But he, then he says, do you find delight in these things we construct to give ourselves identi- you know, identity and make sense of the world? Um, he's saying, I guess I'd find it hard to have a meaningful existence if I didn't, if I didn't play this game of creating language labels for parts of myself and the world around us. Um, what is it we're, we're getting when we decide to, to stop doing that? I mean, do we need categories? Is, is half the fun going of back and forth? Yeah, what do you think? I, well, first of all, I think it's a great question, and, and I'm touched that uh, your son even listens to my podcast. Second of all, uh, he's probably heard me say this, so forgive me. I believe it's either Hafiz or Kabir, but uh, they say, um, I'm walking through the marketplace, but I'm not a purchaser. So Alan Watts also told Ramdas, Ramdas, you're too attached to emptiness, right? So what we're talking about is like f- the play of form and me going, I'm Pete, and then the part of Pete that goes like, I'm not Pete, I'm, I'm awareness itself, and I'm the same thing that's in everybody, right? It's, it's, like, it's not so special. Mm-hmm. But it's also not a flaw in the system. So I go through the market, but I'm not a purchaser. Go through the market, buy some, I mean, I understand he says I'm not a purchaser. Purchase means, in my uh, interpretation, don't identify with it. You can, you can do it anything that's one of the things that christianity got so wrong to me was i remember thinking the way it was explained to me was i was like we all should be clergy i don't understand we should all be telling people that a train is about to hit them when richie of course sees that god can work and does work through everybody his great book everything belongs so as much as i enjoy being quiet and vanishing and as much as I enjoy getting and staying and keeping a part of myself in that place that's giggling at any of this, of course I milk the fuck out of Pete. It would be a disrespect to Pete. It would be saying, this is all a mistake. This is all stupid. I know better than, we'll say God. I know better than God. I'm just an illusion. Dance the dance. That's what we're doing. It might all just be like a hoax or a play or a trick or an experiment. But do the experiment. It, it was you that wanted to do it, or a part of you that wanted to set this whole thing in motion. So I enjoy, 
I get a lot of juice out of it, but like you just keep a part of you from completely associating with the drama. Uh, I think that's kind of the balance of it. No, that's, that's really helpful. It, and it makes sense. You'd say that. I think to your point too, when you're talking about, you know, psychedelic drugs earlier, you know, what, what a lot of people are finding a lot of the new research, and it's not even, I mean, it's, it's basically this research was known in the past, but then it was kind of like shuttered for a while. And I think it's coming back with, with a vengeance now is that whether it's alcoholism or smoking or PTSD, I mean, a lot of what the benefits of psychedelic drugs are that you're recognizing there's a separation between you, the reactions that you might have, particularly around your ego and this, this sense of deeper okay. self that's separated from that. So you can say to yourself, I don't have to be that. I can, right. those things may pop up and every guru, every, you know, per, people are great at meditating will say, you know, Hey, look, we all have these reactions, but you don't have to be that reaction. I think yeah. that part's been incredibly powerful. I'll but, tell you this. Uh, this yeah. was a weird thought that I had today is my Leela who didn't watch TV before, but now there's just so many hours in the day. Um, we'll watch Daniel Tiger, which is a, a cartoon based on Mr. Rogers. And, um, I was just noticing today, watching it with her, that Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is a show that takes place in the land of make-believe. Right. If you watch Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers will always send the trolley into the land of make-believe, and that's where Daniel Tiger lived. Right. So the show Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood actually takes place exclusively in the land of make-believe, right? Which means he's not real. It's fucking trippy, dude. I am completely sober. I wrote this down today. I was in a fever because I was like, he's not real. In the reality of the show, I mean, I know he's not real because he's a TV show, but I mean, even in his reality, he doesn't exist. He is the dream of a disembodied and unseen Fred Rogers, which, by the way, is basically Hinduism. So, you can freak out on that, that we are basically, like every time, Daniel's dad isn't real, Daniel's mom isn't real, Daniel's new baby sister isn't real, his problems aren't real, the storm in the neighborhood that knocked down the tree isn't real. So as it potentially, in our lives, we are the dream, I think it's Shiva, we're the dream of a deity, we're the dream of something, right. which part A means none of this is real, part B, play the game. It's a dream. Be your part. Be your part. We like, nobody wants to be the guy in the dream that just goes around going, this is a dream. This is a dream. Shut up. We're at six flags. Go on the ride. It's okay. It's, 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 it's much, it's, you know, you always want to be aware of your dream when you're having it. But then I think, you know, if, if you've talked about this and I've, I've had it a few times, but you know, when, when you actually do take control of your dream, it's much less interesting, right? Yeah. It's, it's more fun to, you want to strike a balance. It's actually very similar to lucid dreaming. You want to become aware that you're dreaming, but not so much that it blows the dream. Right. You want to like just keep your awakeness enough that the, the high school gym doesn't dissolve. Oftentimes I become so aware in my dream that the dream stops. That's what happened. So you, you kind of do that in waking life as well. It's like, I don't want to be so enlightened that I can't just talk to you right now because I'm a swarm of atoms talking to a swarm of atoms through a machine that's a swarm of atoms over airwaves that are swarms of atoms. Air is atoms too. It's all just a swarm of fucking bees. But it's pretty cool that those bees are over there and these bees are over here. And the relationship between these two sets of bees that think they're separate is by Trinitarian theology, 
what God is. It's this, it's this interplay. It's the movement. It's the swell of the ocean. We, you know, nobody looks at the ocean and goes, I wish it would hold still. You know what I mean? <laughs> stop, stop swelling. It's <laughs> no, it's the energy moving through the water. And, and I, you know, that's, we've surfed together, you know, quite a few times. And I think, you know, the, the thing that's fascinating is, you know, growing up on the Great Lakes, every, you know, all those storms are quite close to you. So the, the swell, you know, the, the period between the waves is really tight and you're always getting wave on top of wave on top of wave. Here in Southern California, you know, the waves, the energy can come from, you know, the Southern Hemisphere from New Zealand. And those waves, yeah. you can have 20 minutes between sets, right? Where it's like, it looks like it's calm and glassy and then, you know, 10 foot waves pop up. Wow. I think it's, it's fascinating how the energy, I mean, it's just, it's such a, a, a great metaphor, I guess, or now. Oh, yeah. Right? But it's also literal. I, I, when, I, when I get into something, I get it really into it. And um, I'm a seven, my, like my third number is a seven, although sevens tend to tire me. Sevens are, yeah, are enthusiasts. Hey, I do can you take one step back and tell us what the Enneagram is? And, and uh, I haven't taken it yet. I've heard about it a lot from my wife and from you, yeah. and, you and Rob and Kristen and Val. But what, what, what is the Enneagram? The Enneagram is a ancient, I have to say ancient because it sounds like um, Scientology. Uh, <laughs> Scientology does have similar maybe personality tests. They're very interested in personality tests, but it's the same with Myers-Briggs and stuff. Um, people don't really know where the Enneagram came from, but it used to be a tool uh, that they would keep secret. It was just for the church leaders um, I'm not an expert on the Enneagram. I'm not an expert on the origins of the Enneagram, but I do take comfort in knowing that it's very old. And it's a test you can take online, the Enneagram Institute. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half. And there's nine personality types. But what makes it fun is the point of the Enneagram test is to humiliate you. So St. Francis, again, praying for humiliations. It's not to, it's not, it can be, if misused, it can just be, as Richie would say, a party trick. But really, the point of it is to sort of break you a little bit. Um, so you take this test. For example, I'm an achiever. So it tells you all these things that you're like sort of good at. But then it'll tell you what you're, to use the Christian language, what your sin is. Or you, you, I think there's more secular, like the website wouldn't say sin. It would just say like what your blind spot is maybe. So it would be like for an achiever, it's deceit. Mm. Um, we, we lie. In fact, I mean, I still have a huge part of my brain that's like, if you can lie and it doesn't really hurt anybody, you should definitely lie. <laughs> like if it makes your life a little bit better and nobody's like the wiser. And then, you know, there's some gray areas where it's like, maybe it does hurt somebody, but in a way that it won't come back to you. Oh, you should definitely lie. You can make this money or, or do, by the way, this sounds like I'm a, a, a shit bag. I'm not. I just see it in myself. I see the impulse to do something for the maximum effect, for the maximum money, for the maximum esteem and praise. And if it involves greasing like one little nut with a little lie, of course you do it. The, the greater good, you know, totally justifies. Bill Clinton is a three, you know what I'm saying? It's like politicians would do well, do do well to be threes. Um, and then, so the other numbers, uh, I won't go through all of them. We've gone through quite a few of them, this thing, but it's very helpful to know your number. And then you do start seeing other people's numbers, other places. I don't know if you're a three or a seven, but I would put big money on you either being a three or a seven. I need to, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And, uh, I'll let you know when I get my scorecard back. 
Yeah. Uh, please do. A lot of other personality tests, but I just haven't done that one yet. Yeah. Well, you're very successful. And, but you're also very enthusiastic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Rob is a seven, dyed in the wool. Rob Bell is a seven. Um, and his job is to infect you with his enthusiasm. Right. So he can be talking about the book of Hosea and he's just so excited about it. Like you kept yourself being excited about it. My thing is, is a little bit different. I look at like, oh, this is what makes people laugh and you almost study it. And you, comedy is natural for a three because you're looking, basically my job is a professor, professional manipulator. Again, that sounds nasty. I just mean trying to manipulate people into laughing. So it serves me to have an analytical mind and a practical mind that's just like, well, this is the best way to do that. You should do this. Do you, um, as you're going through, like, so, you know, you've broken through these barriers and all sorts of comedy. Um, you've unleashed this curiosity. You know, you don't have the boundaries of where you came from or the faith traditions. It seems like in comedy right now, and, and you're pushing a lot of boundaries in terms of, you know, the possibilities. Um, some of the politically correct angles are biting back. I mean, I think comedians helped us break through a lot of social barriers, but it's also kind of whipsawing back on a lot of comedians right now. Um, do you think there's an issue with some of this polit political correctness? Um, is it just like a mindset of a younger generation we're not understanding as an older one? Are we the new Archie Bunkers? <laughs> That's funny. What's, what's, what's going on? I mean, I feel like the way that the world goes is, is we should become the new Archie Bunkers because that's how growth happens. You know, my father is still an Archie Bunker. He doesn't even know that he's an Archie Bunker. And that's, that's just, that feels natural to me for me to be like, God, you're so backwards. And sometimes I think about how my daughter will think like the fact that I say something that we don't yet know is offensive, is offensive. Um, but I mean, here, here's my answer. First of all, as a three, I always just saw a great benefit um, if I'm running myself like a business, which isn't very sexy or artistic, but I always sort of stayed away from things. Like if, if there was Intel that was like, we don't want, like right now, of course, and I agree with this, don't do transphobic jokes. I'm just like, well, that's just good business. My business is to delight people. Some people want to delight people um, by shocking them and, and breaking barriers and, and all that sort of stuff. Here's what I would say in defense of those people. It's, I shouldn't have picked transphobia because that's such a nasty one. I was going to ask, can you give us an example of a transphobic joke? <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. I, here's what we're dealing with with art. And you see this in um, photojournalism, you see this in uh, graphic art, you see the painting, you see this in theater, you, and you see it in stand-up comedy. And it goes back to true self, false self, but it's a little bit different. We're talking about an aspect of your false self, which is called your shadow, right? The reason I love roasts is because it's how you exercise somebody's shadow. Mm. It's like, if I was gonna roast you, David, I would make fun of how successful you are or how you're very good looking and you know, you're just like the white man walking through the world, just picking apples from the tree. And this is how people perceive you. I know you're so much more than this, but I would roast that, right? But that doesn't feel like a roast. That just feels like a really nice thing to say. <laughs> but the way you do it would feel horrible, but that's awesome. No, we keep, but, but keep going. No, I, well, <laughs> no, when, you know, roasts are a great way to shine light. It's, it's the things that people say behind your back 
in the spotlight. So that is very helpful in exercising somebody's shadow. We also have collective shadows. We all have ways that we're full of shit. We all have demons. We all have darkness. We all have, I, I say this all the time. I don't care if you're a sweet nun. Uh, every once, once in a while you think of um, kicking someone off a cliff or, or worse, just like flashes of terrible thoughts come through everybody. And that's your shadow. So what happened with YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all of this like unification of all the voices is that we're sort of losing space for what I always say is like the dark nightclub in Amsterdam. You, you're in Amsterdam, you've had a little absinthe, you're, you're walking on one of those old cobblestone streets, it's two in the morning and you duck into a bar just to sit down and there happens to be a show. And there is a show that is so offensive, it offends you. You are offended, right? But in a performance, <laughs> a performance arty sort of way, like Maria Abramovich, who's trying to shock you, who's trying to offend you, you leave having been serviced in a way that you didn't even know you wanted to be serviced. You wanted to be shocked. You wanted to be enlivened by this like nasty, disgusting, wrong humor. And it served you. That is in defense of it, right? That we're losing the space for it because of Facebook and Twitter. Everybody's on the record. If you Facebook share that you went to that show and you liked it and there's a link to it, now 9 a.m. Monday morning, David Vanderveen has to account for 4 a.m. Amsterdam, David Vanderveen, having a much deeper, darker part of his psyche addressed and salved by dark art, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't stand up on Monday and you're fired. You're fired from your job because you shared an inappropriate video or you're called into question or whatever. Um, the problem with so much offensive comedy and even comedy that's not that offensive, so this is what I'll say not in their defense because I do think that's very valuable and can be really cathartic and really fucking funny. I actually happen to really love offensive comedy. Bill Burr is one of my favorites and I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but that requires a certain splitting of what you believe and what's making you laugh right now. The problem, what I'd say, and I'm gonna keep this in the realm of movies, for example, um, is that it, the assumptions of this offensive humor is almost, without exception, is in favor of a majority that is just a collectively agreed upon story. That like, what were, what were we just saying? Oh, we were just watching something and we were like thinking about how somebody was weird or something, but we were just like, what do we mean by that? We're saying they're weird in comparison to a straight white male, right? right. I'm, not, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just saying if there's something to attack or question or at least consider is like when something's offensive, what perch is it standing on? And is, does that perch have room for everybody? Uh, almost certainly no. So that's what makes it a, a, a tricky, tricky thing. Yeah, no, that, that, uh, it, it is tricky. And I, I think people are, you know, threading the needle and trying to figure it out because you, you have to be on the edge or you're going to lose. I mean, it's, that's half of the fun is, is the discovery. Well, we um, just need to like compartmentalize a little bit and realize that not everything it's been politicized a little bit. Yeah. Like you're on the record 
for liking it because you share it, you Instagram that you were there. And that's why 9 a.m. Monday morning, you has to come into account that you love Eddie Murphy's Raw, right? And Eddie Murphy's Raw is homophobic. It's, na it's nasty. I mean, so it's sort of a, it's not a complete answer. I'm not even positing it as an answer. I'm just saying for me, it's, it's like liking the dark shit that you like is sort of like liking the kinky porn that you like. Maybe just keep it to yourself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's too late. We've already talked about most of that. But, you know, but I think that's <laughs> half the fun of it, too, is you, know, you, you have the benefit of being able to kind of hide in plain sight. You talk about a lot of things most people won't talk about, which I think liberates people to feel comfortable talking about the things they used to hide, which yeah. in many cases I think is just super healthy. Well, here's the, the hopeful part is I think there's a way to talk about our shadow and there's a way to cathartize and, and serve people and serve their dark side without just being a caricature mouthpiece for it. Mm. That that's not my cup of tea. No, I think and I think that's a huge difference. If you think about Bill Burr as an example, I mean I don't know him as well. Obviously I don't I don't know him, but I've met, met him once or twice through you. But you know if you watching his comedy and then kind of getting a glimpse of his personal life, you if you just watch his comedy you might kind of think he's a racist Southie, right? But then you realize, well, he's married to an African-American woman. You know, they have a child. You know, this is a much more complicated human than, than that. Well, and, yeah. And I think he's so aware of maybe some of those tendencies or that, that you know, the, the stereotype of a Southie Boston guy that he's able to kind of live it, breathe it, and then also kind of flip it on you in ways that surprise you, right? Yeah. Um, maybe you can explain it better than me, but that's kind of what I pick up from him. I mean, I, I'm sure none of us agree with each other on almost <laughs> on, on everything, but he seems to be a lot more complex than the character you see on stage. Of course, and I, th I think that's important to say because one of the reasons I like Bill is he reminds me of so many people that I grew up with. Yeah. So changing him would change that way that I enjoy him. Plus he's not, he's not gonna change. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No, hilarious. Um, so, are you doing any uh, any psychedelics these days when you're when you're home with your family? Uh, I have. I did it on my birthday. It was my birthday about a week ago. Happy birthday, by the way! I Thank wish you. you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm 41, which I only make the face because it's not like 40 is such a thing, and then 41 is such a not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 51. We're, we're 10 years apart. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Uh, why do you look better than me? Listen. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I didn't take a big dose. I, I've sort of dialed in what I like. Um, yeah. And I find when you take a full dose of something like LSD, um, it's great. Uh, I really like it. But because you're not there, it's sort of like what we were saying. It wakes you up so much that the dream goes away, yeah. uh, which can be really, really fun. Uh, and enjoyable in the moment. But I find with a full dose, I'm talking about 100 micrograms, when you come back, I don't really have that much in my bag. Not that that's the point, um, but the dose is like 35 uh, micrograms um, is just about right for me. That I, I know that's practically a microdose, but I'm actually kind of a lightweight. How many stems I, is that? This is LSD. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know how much, how many grams that would be, but I, uh, I. I'm sure you could find a very trippy calculator online that could figure that out for you. I'm but sure. I. I like. Um, 35 was really really great for me, because it. I have a hard time being in my body, 
Um, I think a lot of men weren't taught how to be in their bodies. And the first feeling that I had on my birthday was just like a complete beaming down of, I felt like a lead, um, like army guy. Like I was just completely (laughs) as heavy as I am. Like I was in my weight, like a sumo, like planted or on a surfboard, like planted. Like I felt my own gravity Right, and just that is something that I don't feel I would say on a full dose because you'd be too distracted by all of the all of the pretty butterflies. I liked that dose. I I basically just hung out. I listened to music, and whenever I go there, I I always just come back and and feel the same thing, which is the good news. However, whatever faith you find that good news in is so much truer than we even know. Like we are so in our own way that the ego refuses to believe that grace and love are freely given. It refuses to believe that you are an inherently dignified, um, you're not a visitor here, as Alan Watts says, you're not a visitor. You're not the animation cell over the backdrop. You are part of the fountain you are already home and you're already loved and you're already accepted and all of that daniel tiger's neighborhood make believe about how you're a bad guy because you honked and flipped somebody off in your car is just noise and it's just a distraction and that stuff that that strips that away and i can get into my into my soul into my core you just go, it's so much truer than we even know. You can't even really know how true it is. You can't know how loved and okay you are. I think and that's that, a good thing to remember. No, I think you're right. I mean, that's something Richard Rohr, he, he pulls that out a lot. Um, you know, that when, for example, when Jesus in the Gospels is sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well, he, he starts talking about water because they're at a well, but he's clearly not talking about the literal water they're sitting with. And he starts going into a, you know, a, a metaphor parable. And then when his disciples come and get pissed off that he's talking to this Samaritan woman of, you know, an unclean woman, et cetera, you know, he starts shifting into another parable that says, Hey, look, none of you know, cause they're saying, you know, should people worship with the Samaritans or with the Jews? And he's like, none of this is going to matter. You're all going to worship in spirit. You're not getting it. And, yeah. and I, I, to that, to, I guess the point you're, you're, you're unraveling there. I, I I think, you know, if people assume, for example, that Jesus was God who was walking among us, they don't have to, but just use that assumption for a second. And God wanted to ask us binary, you know, wanted to give us like contained truths that were written down. You know, he could have done it. And he seems to kind of skip that and just say, every time he get, tries, somebody tries to pin him down, every time somebody tries to ask him a question, he jumps to a story, he jumps to a narrative, he jumps to a myth. And it doesn't mean that there aren't some literal truths. Of course, there, there are some literal truths. But I think every time God has the chance to answer a question from man, God says, that's bigger than that. I'm going to try and give you a story because literal truth won't contain what's really happening here. And I think to your point, these things are so much bigger than us. It's just hard for us to get our heads out of, I think, the enlightenment world we live in, right? This kind of this scientific model that's given us so many good things doesn't do a very good job when it's the bigger things we're trying to explore. That's right. It reminds me of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide where they ask the supercomputer that knows everything what the meaning of life is. And well, I think it's 10 years later, it says 42. 42, yeah. That is the attempt at answering a question like that, literally. But the great news is for those of 
listening that don't want to do drugs, and I'm not even saying people need to, I've had this opening and I was walking my daughter this morning and she kneels down and she's looking at all the, it just looks like dirt to me, but then I kneel down and I notice that there's little mushrooms growing and I notice that there's a, a trail of ants and I notice the, the pattern on a green leaf that looks like the, the veins of a city, like it looks like streets or, or the veins of a human. Or I notice that the palm tree, this is just this morning, looks like an elephant's leg, but it also looks like the husk of a pineapple. I wasn't on drugs and it's been over, you know, there's no residual drugs in me is what I'm saying. I'm not even, I didn't even smoke weed or anything. I'm just saying, I mean, recently, I'm, I'm saying once you go there through music, art, as Richie would say, life affirming sexuality, um, all of these things open up the channels for you to perceive it. Right. Uh, and, and you don't need to be on drugs in my bathtub, in my <laughs> house to go. It's so much truer than it, than we know. You can just, Richie calls panoramic, uh, sorry, he calls contemplative thinking panoramic. When we're judging and labeling and analyzing, you're, I look at just this, I look at that. So you try and look in a panoramic way at reality. All of the secrets aren't secret at all. The, the, the oneness of the universe is revealed to me through the tree that looks like a pineapple or the leaf that looks like veins or my veins that look like a city or the planet that moves like an electron around a nucleus. It's like sometimes I walk around and I go, it's so obvious when we're through this stage and we're on the other side or, or the next side might be a better way to put that. I think there's going to be a good laugh had at how whatever it was that set this in motion made it just hidden enough to be juicy and interesting and just obvious enough to keep you on the path. Because I had a morning this morning where I was like, oh my God, it's right in front of our fucking faces. And by the way, when, you, when people say that your kids help you see through their eyes, you see the world through your daughter's eyes, that's the whole point of the spiritual journey. So if you're not a spiritual person, but you've had kids, you've probably tasted conversion. You mm -hmm. might not be completely baked all the way through, who, which of us are, but you've tasted what I'm talking about. Because when people say, I see the world through my daughter's eyes. I go to the beach and I see the sand now as billions of little shells and rocks and all these things. That is conversion. That is Christ saying, become like little children and you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's so much more available to us than it's been made out to be by religion that says you need to belong to us. You need to recite this creed. You need to wear these clothes. You need to park in this parking lot. If you open your gaze to panorama, or this is what I was going to say when we got off on the Enneagram, when you realize that everything is a wave, a wave is a relationship, and surfing, and I saw this in a movie about surfing, surfing is the only wave that human beings can participate with. Light is a wave, sound is a wave, energy is a wave. Here are waves that you can actually get on top of and have them move you. There's something divine going on there. 
And whether or not you can bring it down to your language centers and share it with people, that's for people like Richie that are gifted in the mouth. <laughs> that's a weird way to say it. But he's gifted in the mouth. He calls himself a mouth in the body of Christ. That's what he is. But you don't need to understand it. You don't need to articulate it. You don't need to share it. And you don't need to force it on any other, anybody else to be converted 50 times every day and lose it 50 times every day. And that'll be the day you die too. You'll, maybe the day you die, you'll wake up and you won't have it. But you'll find it again and you'll lose it again and you find it again. My hope is that I'll have it when I'm dying. That's my only, that's, that's, yeah. my, that's my secret goal is I'd like to die in the pocket of knowing that all I'm doing is making space for the next, the next play of light. Because this thing has eaten enough. This thing has farted enough. This thing had, a, had enough orgasms. This thing learned. This thing had its heart broken. This thing fell in love. This thing created. This thing was thrilled. This thing was scared. Now it's time for that thing to move on. That's, you just had that with Ram Das. He just moved on. How do you think about uh, what's happened to Ram Das now? I, I, I've said this before, forgive me, but I, I find him much more bioavailable to me now. Like uh, he was a spoonful of sugar and then he got stirred into the tea. So I, I feel closer uh, to him than I do when he was here. And that is in line with some of my more woo-woo beliefs being that like he was liberated. Whereas he used to be biolocated to make it sound fancier than it is he used to be in his body and now i believe he is as as people in my world say he left his body but now i find him just like christ i find him here you ever do you ever take lsd and remember christ that's a feeling Ooh, uh that's a good one for good old boys like us for calvin college boys yeah, like you talk about God, but you know my, my my brain's always gone. Usually, when I'm you know when I've done psychedelics, I haven't gone back to like theology or the stuff I, you know the churches. Yeah, why bother? Kind of shifted broader, but it's an interesting that's an interesting idea. I, I was just talking to Aubrey Marcus. I just interviewed him, and he was talking about um, he did the six this darkness meditation where you're locked in a dark room for six days. Whoa. Or I mean, you, they bring you food. It's like you have a dark apartment effectively for six days and a blindfold and stuff. But, um, and it becomes psychedelic after about three days, it sounds like. Um, Whoa. But the, yeah. I mean, but you have like real hallucinations. Um, and he said the Buddha came to him um, and spoke to him during that time, which is kind of profound. Wow. Yeah. But uh, awesome. yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I haven't had the JC come speak to me when I'm. Well, I think the point is like, <laughs> When I was younger, I was very obsessed with how to be more like Christ. We all were. We wore the yeah. what would Jesus do bracelets. And then when you realize that the whole game of incarnation is to show that, here's a great Richie quote. He goes, Jesus didn't come to earth to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to earth to change our mind about God. Right. And the point of Christianity is incarnation, is to say that God existed inside of a man who went around telling everybody that God exists inside of them, that the kingdom of heaven is inside of them. We call that the divine indwelling. So now, whereas I used to wonder what would Jesus do if someone stole his parking spot, which is ethics, which is uh, morality, which is an ego trip. Right. Well, can I do the thing 
that is in line with the Western mythology of winning. Like I'd like to win. So even if I'm nice, I'll be kind of funny and biting about it. So when I tell the story, people will know that I, I wasn't the coward or I wasn't defeated. Like I want to, I want to sacrifice, but like look cool while I do it. Like be the bigger man, but yeah. shine. Like that is all nonsense. And that's what I thought Jesus would have done. He would have done something that was so holy and so pure that it would have made the person feel bad for stealing my parking spot. And then of course, God would open up an even closer parking spot because this is how the, the universe works. That is about a meritocracy. It's about earning the reward, the, yeah. the better parking spot. You get it because you're a sweet, good boy. That is not in line with reality as I see it. So now when I take psychedelics, it's not necessarily remembering the theology of Christ, except maybe in one particular part, which is that I, I believe that Christ is what's looking out my eyes right now, that I believe Christ is the animating principle, that Christ is what erupted when the Big Bang erupted. That was the right. incarnation of Christ. And Jesus Christ was a human being who uh, aligned himself with his true identity, which is Christ. But that is also inside of you, and that is also inside of me. So I became far less concerned with behaving in an ethic in a way that, let's be honest, would be seen by others as Jesus-like. That was ooh, isn't that nice? I I didn't steal my neighbor's newspaper, and they and they caught me not stealing it or whatever the fuck. Now when I'm tripping or I'm in that place through meditation or a quiet walk or whatever it might be, I realize that I am in line with Christ. I'm not saying I'm God. I'm saying that I am perceiving the world. I'm, I'm becoming one of the millions of sets of eyes of God in that moment. Every eye is God's eye, but like I am becoming aware that that's what I am. So I'm becoming aware of my own Christness while I'm on a chemical that's really helping me feel and know that that's what's happening. It's pretty far out. No, I've, I've definitely had that. I've had the, uh, you know, the great unifying wholeness or the, you know, the selflessness that, that comes through I think, pretty consistently. That's, that's the feeling. That's what we're all looking for. That's the, yeah. that's the awakening. Yeah. Did you ever find out, I don't know if I ever asked you this. Um, I noticed that when Richard Alpert, you know, before he was becoming Ram Das, when he was in India, He's trying to, you know, he has all these, uh, he has all this, he has like LSD tablets, I think, in a jar or something. And he's trying to get, find enlightenment and he's not really working out with the first guy he went, went with. And he bumps into a guy from Laguna Beach. Yeah. 1961. And this guy had been there for like five years, some younger guy or some other guy. Yeah, he's in his 20s. Yeah. Do you know who that, did he ever uh, give me an idea? Yeah. I was listening to him this morning um, because he's a musician. His name is Bhagavan, Bhagavan Das. Bhagavan Das. Bhagavan Das. B-H-A-G. I'm off after there. Like it's something with <laughs> I'll find it. B-H-A. I, I just thought that was so like, because I think it was like 61, wasn't it? It was pretty early in the 60s. Yeah. And he's no, there. He, was that right or not? Yeah. No, that's right. And, and Bhagavan Das is the guy who told Ram Das to be here now. Right. Ram, Ram Das was never um, shy about sharing that fact. He didn't. That is to say, like, he didn't make up Be Here Now. I mean, like, neither did Bhagwan Das. But he's who taught it to Ram Das, uh, which, of course, became the book. Which, if people are Ram Das curious, I always say listen to him. There's a great series called Experiments in Truth on iTunes. I would listen to that before I would recommend reading uh, Be Here Now. Be Here Now is not, um, it's not as digestible as hearing him talk by any means. But Bhagwan Das, is, he's an interesting cat. There's a movie about him 
It's called um, Carmageddon. It's very hard to find. Um, it's a good title. I wouldn't say it's the right title for the movie, um, but it's. I feel like they got caught up in the cleverness of the title. I don't know if it's perfect. But anyway, he's a very... I was actually just thinking about him this morning because he's definitely... Uh, a, a devotee, I believe, of Kali, and Kali is sort of like dark. I'm not an expert in Kali, yeah, but Kali is very mischievous. So he's the he's the guy. This is an oversimplification, but like you wouldn't necessarily trust your wife with him. Like he's going to hit on your wife, and you'd be like, I thought you were a spiritual guy, and and he's like, he, almost back to your son's question, he's like, this is a dream. Like what what the fuck are you on about? Like. Who cares if I fuck your wife or if I eat uh, pork or or do anything? So he's like really challenging to somebody like me, who let's be honest, I I do like some uh, civility and I like some ethics mixed in with my spiritual teachers. I don't want somebody that's just like this doesn't matter at all. Of course I this this or this. Like I, I, he he's he's very very difficult for me. But um, yeah, he, that's Bhagwan Das. I'll have to look him up. Yeah, I was just super curious how this, uh, in effect, because he'd been in India for like five years by the time you met Richard. Yeah. It's like, what's a Laguna kid doing hitchhiking around India in the mid 50s? And not only hitchhiking, but being embraced and accepted by like everybody. That's yeah. Ram Das's story is that they'd go to a Sufi temple and he knew all the Sufi rituals. They'd go to a Hindu temple. He knew all the Hindu. He he spoke. Uh, I always confuse Urdu and um, and uh, the one that's almost that is Urdu, but except the word for the language. Pushtu. I'm blanking. Or the, or the main language. Uh, you mean? Uh, yeah. Um, Hindi. Hindi. Yeah. Yeah. But he spoke that, and uh, I mean. That that's sort of, but I mean, like here, let's let's put it this way: to be positive, incredible musician, and he has a, an album called Golden Voice that I listen to almost every day. But I, as a as a guy, I don't, I don't. He's very uh, prickly. Well, yeah, I mean, the followers of Kali. That's a pretty dark sect of Hinduism. I mean, it's let's thugs. The term thug comes out of thuggery, which are they would uh, part of the. I don't know Kali that well either, but. I know some of the, the rites and rituals include murder and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, as, as it goes, he's not even the most extreme, but he's very specifically to a Westerner, which we both are. He's very iconoclastic. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I don't, I would tell you what I would know, but because, or what I've been told, but I don't want to spread rumor because I don't know if it's true, but you know, there's, there's. Now you have to tell me, don't you? I'll tell you off, Mike. I just don't want it to be on a podcast. Enough, fair enough. You know what I mean? I just, I, because it is a rumor. If I don't know something's true, I don't want to say somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I do know that there are people, uh, devotees of, of different mischievous gods in India that will like, you know, eat their own poop and stuff. He, he doesn't do that. That's not what I said. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, you want to do a speed round? You want to answer some binary questions? Sure. We've just been way outside the constructs. Want to jump in a construct? Yeah. The first question is, do you think you can keep it to yes or no? I'm so bad at stuff like this. I'm going to really try. That's why I thought it'd be really fun. I thought you would hate it and you would. Just oh, I, do, I don't hate it. I just get so excited. <laughs> All right. We're going to start out simple. Black or white? 
Oh. Uh, black. <laughs> True or false? True. Heaven or hell? Heaven. Jesus or Buddha? Hey, Jesus. Sorry, Buddha. Trump or Biden? Biden. <laughs> Weed or shrooms? Uh, ooh, shrooms. <laughs> Kumail or Mulaney? Kumail. Sorry, Mulaney. <laughs> Sweats or suits? Sweats. Penises or vaginas? Um, the only reason I'm pausing is because I'm quite fond of my own penis. Uh, I'm going to say vaginas. Yeah, vaginas. New York or L.A.? You know, my gut said New York. I'll say New York, although I wouldn't want to live there. Ooh, Boston or New York? New York. <laughs> Patriots or the Packers? The Packers, that's just a straight rebellion to my family and also because we both know Aaron and he's great. <laughs> Redcoats or Minutemen? Minutemen. <laughs> Congratulations, Pete. You just won the, uh, you just won the speed round. <laughs> all of them. That's amazing. Uh, the wrong answer. I just love that you actually answered. I was, I was like, should I put, try and put Pete through a speed round? And I was like, he's going to hate this. I, just, I didn't think he didn't want to do it. No, I did like it. I'm just usually very bad at it. Well, you just want a lifetime supply of Tahitian noni juice, Pete. You know what's funny? So Val and I have been having a hard time uh, finding vitality. Yeah. We have what all this... We have all this time, yeah. Um, but it's hard for me to like gather up the will to do something. And I don't know if the Tahitian noni juice on the bottle or if in the literature, you know, the pamphlet that I read, uh, but I think it used the word vitality or something very similar. So I was like, I'm going to try this. Now, you do have to keep in mind that I'm, uh, I'm sort of the person that ruins studies. <laughs> you love placebo. Yeah, if you gave me a placebo, I'd be like, like every time I've taken a psychedelic, I'm convinced it it started working immediately. Um, and it's the same with when I, if I make mac and cheese, I'll start getting that uh, gluteny, like bad feeling while I'm making it. So I'm very, I'm very suggestible. I've been very upfront about that. Um, but the things that I like, you know, Alpha Brain here on my desk or Charlotte's Web, which is the um, CBD that I uh, take. Um, they do really fucking a work like a hundred percent and the noni juice to, to finish that anecdote, uh, has been making me feel more vital and uh, just a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more pep in my step and I've been getting more done. And I, I can't say, you know, Michael Pollan says like, don't take vitamins, be the kind of person that takes vitamins because people, <laughs> people who take vitamins tend to be healthier, but it's not necessarily the vitamins is his point. Yeah. Um, so it could be that, but thank you for it. From this one case study, I think it's really helping and making me feel good. You know that, okay, so I discovered Charlotte's Web through you and I discovered Alpha Brain through you. I actually was listening to another guy that I'm working with, Tim Staples, who does shareability. It really, they do a lot of these um, viral videos and things. He was on Aubrey Marcus's podcast and I was only listening to him because he was on Aubrey's pod podcast. And in the middle of it, this ad comes on for Alpha Brain and I was like, I've, I've heard of Alpha Brain. I bought Alpha Brain from Pete and I looked it up and, and I, it's totally reverse engineered the dots on that one. But the, uh, <laughs> it was really funny, but you, you've always picked great stuff and, uh, and yeah. I appreciate your picks. Pete's picks are fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they're all um, legit. So last last question, you and I know you uh, you've answered this different ways, but um, you know a lot of people are in listening to this podcast are trying to break through barriers in their life in different ways. Some of them might be trying to become a writer, uh, produce, be a creator, um, you know, do stand up, uh, all the different things you've done, write cartoons for the New Yorker. What's what would you say is like the central theme that's allowed you to figure out how to be successful at each of those things? Uh, that's allowed you to kind of break through and get noticed and and get published in a way, one way or another. Well, I hope this is helpful. I really, I really think the most important thing you can do is make sure that the thing that you think you want is actually the thing you want. Um, so a lot of people tell me they want to do stand up or they want to have cartoons in the New Yorker, whatever it is. <clears throat> and my goals and my dreams have coincided with the values of my culture, like being famous. I'm not saying I'm famous. I'm just saying being famous, being rich. I'm not saying I'm rich. I'm saying those things are valued. Being on TV. I am on TV. Being funny, being powerful and in charge of your life, which is like the clearer thing that a comedian is. It's like, nobody tells me what to do. I tell jokes and all that stuff. All of those things are valued by my culture. If I lived in a world where stand-ups were just troubadours and weirdos, um, I'm pretty sure I would still be a comedian. That's, that's what happened. That's what's written on my bones. So when people say that they want to be comedians, I say, follow the dream that's following you. Like the mm -hmm. dream is involved in this process. It's like a helix. So if you're just going, I want that because fame and money and power and influence are cool. Um, I've said this a million times, the people that I know, I've been doing comedy for over 20 years. The people that I know that did it to be famous, the people that I know to be rich or to get laid, none of them are doing it anymore. Right. Like with that, almost without exception, they've all fallen away. So my advice is to look for the feedback. You don't have to be great right away. I don't mean like you go to an open mic and you bomb. I guess it's not for you. The feedback is quieter than that sometimes. It's something that's gnawing at you. Like you, it's a compulsion. Everything that I do is a compulsion, meaning it actually is uncomfortable for me to not do it. So what are the things for you? I would imagine that's surfing, right? Or, or things like that. There's so many things that it's like, if you don't do that, it's missing from your life. That's not to say we couldn't, like currently I'm in a life where I'm not doing stand-up and I'm doing fine. Um, but that's 20 years in. Like we can find that balance later. At the beginning, it's so clear, not only that this, this path, lined up with my psychology, my dysfunction, and my talent. But most importantly, it lined up with my talent. Like I started getting that feedback that I was good at it. There's a real tragedy in the world that uh, people don't really talk about, which is when the ambition doesn't match the talent. A lot of people might have the mind for it, the drive for it. They might be marketing geniuses. You know what these people become? Lorne Michaels. I'm not putting Lorne Michaels down. I'm telling you, Lorne Michaels, without a doubt, would have traded it all to be John Belushi. Mm. He, has a, he has a great quote where he says, life isn't fair, talent isn't fair. And when I hear him say that, I hear him saying without saying it, I would have loved to be John Belushi. Of course he would have. So 
clean up your dream, shake it, give it the real scientific method, break it, reconstruct it, look at it another way, meditate on it, dream about it, sleep on it, take it for a walk, do everything you can to see it as clearly as possible. Ask yourself, is this actually my dream? Or have I inherited a dream from my culture? Is it really what I'm supposed to do? Is it really what I want to do? And then after you're doing it for a while, you can start asking yourself, uh, am I good at this? Am I contributing to this? You almost look at stand-up as this thing that's happening. And you have to ask yourself, am I contributing to it? Am Am I a good part of the collective? Am I making it better? Or am I just sort of like a barnacle on it, uh, on, on its tail, which, which is fine. And maybe it can be a hobby of yours. But if you want it to be like your career, at a certain point, you have to go like, am I getting better? Am I good? Am I getting laughs? Am I getting bookings? Whatever it might be. No, that's, that's powerful, Pete. I think, and I think, you know, obviously, I, I agree. I think that's dead on. I think whatever we're going to do is going to be hard work. If it's going to be any good. And if you're not deeply passionate about it, if it's not coming out of your soul, it's the wrong thing. It's, yeah. uh, it's hard to find it, but when you do, that's where all the magic is. And it's weird, man. Like I write scripts. That's what I'm basically doing during this lockdown. And, and I really love it. Writing is just a, a, a crazy person talking to themselves. <laughs> and when you're writing scripts, it's worse you're having conversations with yourself. And then he says, this book? And then the other guy goes, yeah, that book. That's why I said, hand me that book. And then I bet he makes this face. Ben looks at him sourly. And then he, <laughs> like, it's insanity. And not only that, but when I do it, I get a real look. I don't wanna disrespect Asperger's by saying I have Asperger's, but I'm definitely on some sort of spectrum where it's weird to be able to go into that mode. I was, I was stoned the other day and, and Val said, your Asperger's is showing, which is a joke we make when she's just saying, you're thinking in a way that other people don't think. Right. You tell me if this makes sense. Cause I thought, and still think this is super funny. I, I'm like, why do we all know how to talk like the same way? For example, if your job I have to make something up. Like if your job is you have to go hike a mountain and look for berries, right? That's your job. And I'm, uh, I'm not your boss, but I'm the guy back at the lab that analyzes the berries, right? And then I'm, bre- I know this is a big setup, but it'll be- Where this come from? This is awesome. <laughs> it's really weird. But it, it, can, it can be anything. It just has to be yeah, yeah. something where you do the legwork and mm-hmm. I'm back at the lab. Yep. So I'm, you all know there's a billion different uh, mutations of this situation. I'm at the lab, you're in the field. It can be a million things. Now we're in the field and we're talking about the next time you go into the, we're in the lab. The next time you go into the field, you're eating a sandwich. I'm the guy in the lab and I go, well, as soon as uh, David's done with his lunch, I suppose I could go over the specs for the next uh, drop. Here's what we all know how to do as if handed scripts. You, because you're upset that I pointed out that you're eating a sandwich. You say, hey, let me ask you something. Everyone knows this is how you start an altercation like this. You go, hey, let me ask you something. When I'm out there busting my ass for those berries, do you ever see me 
eating a sandwich out there? And I go, no. And then you go, <laughs> this is so, I'm now seeing that Val might've been right, that this doesn't make any sense. You go like, because you don't have any sandwiches in the field. You go like, you ever, no, 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 no. Do you ever see me like eat a Pop-Tart while I'm out there? And then, and then you have to be like, all right, I get it. You have to eat while you're in the lab. I get it. And he's like, no, 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 no. And now the third example has to be the craziest one. You have to be like, you ever see me just like eating a couple figs or something? And then, <laughs> and then someone else will step in and go, all right, all right, he gets it. You have to eat while we're talking, okay? My point is, even though, as I'm saying this, not stone, that this barely makes sense, the way that we talk is an inherited thing. You learned it from a movie, you right. learned it from a TV show, and you, and you learned, just take the first example, because that sort of made sense, that when you're gonna confront somebody and you know you have the upper hand, you go, hey, let me ask you something. You, you work with other people, Dave, you know what I'm talking about. Like if someone calls you out on something and they're wrong and you're put upon and they're not grateful of you, you start by saying, let me ask you something. And then they go, what? You go, when I'm out there flying to Japan, risking my life for the coronavirus so I can sell more noni juice, do you ever wonder if I get hungry out there? Okay, Dave, I understand. No, 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 seriously. Do you ever wonder like how I get the energy to take all those 22 hour flights? All right, you've made your point. It might be because I'm having snacks. All right, all right. Like we, we all know the lines. Right, right, right. That's how I'm aspy. That's how I write scripts though because people that look at dialogue almost like objects, like math, are good at writing scripts. That's what I mean by saying, follow the dream that's following you. If you can't go to a party and just comfortably merge with a conversation and not think about the conversation while you're having it, you're probably not gonna be very good at writing a script. Yeah. I can't watch Love is Blind because there's too much of an anthropomorphic case study going on i'm memorizing too many things that stupid people say to enjoy it mm. so that's what i go this dysfunction is actually a good thing to have if you want to write movies no I th it's it's massive and, and i've noticed that about you too that um that there's i mean we all have it in some way I mean, your comedy is driven by it, I think, a lot, where you'll point out things that most of us miss because you have this unique ability to see things that we're kind of, you know, walking by and not even noticing because it's too categorized and you're able to still break through those categories. It's, it's, it's fun to watch. I started laughing when, when, you, when you use that, um, your, <laughs> when you use the phrase about your, uh, your autism showing. Um, yeah, no, that's, 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 uh, I think we all have it. Hopefully we, we get more of it. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, that's what makes uh, life special when we get more of that in our lives. So we can actually see it a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So just take the way you're messed up and, and use that to create something. But don't, but don't assume you want to write scripts because it sounds nice to stay home all day. The corresponding brain patterns make other things unpleasant. So it's a give and a take. Yeah. And you're already giving. Just figure out how you want to take. <laughs> it always looks better from a distance too. It never, uh, yeah. it's never quite as good when you're in the middle of it. Yeah. This has been a great journey, Pete Holmes. Thanks for making time today. I hope we get to have another conversation soon. This is, uh, I miss you. and I, I miss you too, yeah. ma'am. Good times. Well, this has super been- Super fun. Yeah, super fun. This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast and um, this is Pete Holmes. 
we'll have a great intro about him. And uh, he's a good friend of, uh, of Venism, Team Vandy's. Pete, one of the things I'm going to say before you go, you give yes. some of the best gifts I've ever received in my life. Uh, <laughs> Venism sticker, which is, uh, which is a family favorite. Yep. Jenny, Jenny finds you that. She does my T-shirts. Unbelievable. Great yeah, work. Thanks, Pete. Say hi to Val. Right. And See you, Lee, Baby Lee. And, Love uh, to you guys, too. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.